And so it is my true honor today to invite back to our platform a member who has graced us with her life experiences and her pain and her hope to previous times over the course of years, and Estelle will do so again today. She found ethical culture while living in Ohio and Cleveland after coming here following the war. She and her husband Chuck settled here in 1961 and a fine career in the public school system as a teacher until her retirement. Chuck is not with us today because he's struggling with cancer and with chemotherapy and it's just not up, wasn't up to coming in here today and braving the weather and the stairs and <laughs> the barriers that we at the moment have unfortunately are living under. But I'm sure he's here in spirit and I'm Trust he'll listen to the tape afterwards. We welcome Estelle to our platform this morning. Today is Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Memorial Day. As many of you know, I am a witness. As witness, my story needs to be told. We must be reminded from time to time of the consequences of coexisting with tyranny, what it does to trust and love, and how it corrupts the national soul. I will share memories of spiritual, moral resistance in the Warsaw Ghetto and how it culminated in the Warsaw Ghetto uprising and the total destruction of the Warsaw Ghetto. What I will share may be hard to listen to, for that I apologize. However, I would like to stress that my reminiscences also bring examples of the resilience of the human spirit, courage, and an indomitable faith in what is good and right. I was born on Miwa Street in the heart of the then vibrant Jewish neighborhood in Warsaw, Poland. Our street had tall buildings with ironwork net balconies and was abuzz with noisy people. Although outbursts of hooliganism against Jews were common in Poland still, Warsaw was the center of my universe and glows in my selective memory in golden radiance of lilac trees against open blue skies, air filled with fragrance, joyous play, rich sounds of good neighbors, kindness, and faith in love. Magic train rides to the country in the summer, coziness of home were emblazoned in my memory and later became shelters in my mind in a world that crumbled around me. I had just turned 10 when Germany invaded Warsaw after four weeks of heavy bombardment 
that reduced blocks in my streets to desolate holes of rubble. My once peaceful streets were soon patrolled by foreign soldiers in clicking boots and helmets and rifles. They shouted hatred and contempt, snapped their whips in our streets and our houses. They accused us of greed while forcing their way into our homes to steal and plunder. If one as much as uttered a word, one was shot on the spot. They rationed all food and water, closed schools, and made books illegal. We had no electricity, no transportation, no telephones. We could not reach our friends, even in an emergency. Radios were confiscated, and newspapers stopped the same day. We lived in a state of darkness, cut off from the world and all that was taking place in it. In the spring of 1940, the Germans ordered the Judenrat, the Jewish Community Council, to build at its own expense a thick wall around the ghetto. They packed the ghetto with Jews driven out of surrounding areas and named it the death box. Uh, There were approximately uh, a half a million Jews crowded in an area encompassing about 100 uh, city blocks. The refugees were stripped of all possessions, Their numbers far exceeded the available housing and food. Most died of cold and starvation. Corpses, tragic heaps of corpses, littered our streets. I hope nobody ever again asks me, why did the Jews not fight back? It was precisely in the hell of occupied Warsaw when I was a young girl, that I met my noblest heroes. They taught me that you can fight back even if you do not have a gun. They showed me that you can stand up against dictators by defying inhumane ordinances, by aiding a weaker member in your community, and by living according to the dictates of your own conscience, no matter the cost. Immediately, the Jewish community marshaled forces and instituted a far-reaching self-aid center. They imposed monthly payments and raised thousands of zlotis. Willing or not, misers were forced to give. Every apartment building established a kitchen to feed the starving. People collected food and took turns cooking, and we children helped stir the big pots. Just as our ancestors, who were imprisoned in ghettos, continued to create their own culture, So did we. To own a book 
was an act of defiance, and many defied. My father read to us his favorite story by Sholem Aleichem and Sholem Ash, and parrots, knights, windows blinded with black covers to keep our existence secret in a small room illuminated by a flickering carbide light. My family sat in an invisible embrace, warm in a frozen universe. My father's voice drawn with swaddling comfort, connecting nuances, conveying nuances, which brought to life remote worlds. Our room was a tiny capsule of paradise, separating us from the deadly quiet outside our windows. The guns hovering over our heads did not stop us from pub publicly celebrating holidays and rejoicing in our cultural values without fear of being denounced. Holiday parties were held in every court, even in homes facing the streets. We shut the blacked-out windows, and that was enough. On Passover, the courtyard committee made sure that there was matzah in every home. The enemies made laws, but we ignored them. Jews ignored the Nazi prohibition to hold parties with music and dancing, for which the Germans held the courtyard committee responsible. It was a mitzvah to dance, a protest against the oppressors. I did not understand it then, but now I appreciate our amazing will to live and trump adversity. It was not only pure fortune or a miracle that preserved us. The self-aid organization supported several theaters, all well attended, and provided jobs for the unemployed actors. Imagine theaters when there was no bread. My parents were dedicated supporters of a small repertory theater across the street from our house and often took my sister and me to see the performances. I do not remember the plays, and I doubt I grasp the uh, complexities of the plots or the biting uh, satire. But still, I still feel the magic the actors created on the small stage under yellow carbide spotlights. Of course, when I was 11 or 12, I did not understand the lasting value of those special experiences, nor did I yet know that when you lose everything, your memories become your possessions. We had no food. Our lives teetered on the edge of the sword, yet people sat in small, dark rooms at tables with pencils and paper and writing. For some, the pen was a weapon of resistance. Some felt compelled to leave records 
for history to remember. Others wrote to mobilize spiritual strength. Chaim Kaplan, a remarkable Holocaust author, wrote from the ghetto, more than bread, we need poetry at a time when we do not seem to need it at all. That concept never consciously entered my young mind, but I lived by it. Schools were strictly forbidden, yet all over the ghetto, parents hired tutors for their children. Their motto was, the good of the child takes precedence over everything. Parents sold personal items and sacrificed their food rations to pay for tutors. Young ghetto children, too, took an active part in moral resistance. We sneaked our books and notebooks under our clothes and marched right past the brutal faces of German soldiers patrolling the streets. We knew perfectly well that if we were caught, we, our parents, our teacher, or all of us could be shot. We did not give ourselves particular credit for the daring. We just knew it was the right thing to do. Only now, far from the danger of that time, am I able to recognize that each step we took was a supreme act of courage and an assertion of human worth. Deportations from the Warsaw Ghetto began the month of my 13th birthday, July 1942. At first, we did not know that deportations meant death. Jewish people had been forced to write false letters to their families, inviting to join them in Białystok and Minsk, where they worked and received food and clothing. As a result, some people marched voluntarily and unknowingly to the transfer station, Umschlagplatz, and to slaughter. Panna Anka, my best friend's nanny, Lonely, without kin, and unwilling to be a burden to the family, filled a small satchel with the most essential belongings, put on her best blue suit and matching pumps, smoothed her woolly dark hair neatly back, put a dab of makeup to look her best, raised her head high to give herself courage, said goodbye, and departed for Umschlagplatz. What better choice did Panna Anka have than chancing the promise to be treated more mercifully if she gave herself up? She was not a meek she. Panna Anka was somebody with pride, hope, and courage. Most people resolve to stay put at any price and not follow orders to march. The obvious escape was finding a hiding place in your home during Aktia, 
deportation roundups. Some hid under mattresses of their beds, in cupboards, in drawers, in concealed rooms, and other outlandish places and crevices they could squeeze their bodies into and vanish out of sight. My par uh, parents with young children and infants took pillows with them to silence the babble and cry of their babies. Our hideout was a concealed room behind the wardrobe. The deportations proceeded with 20th century efficiency and Stone Age values. Daily, like wild bands, German soldiers descended upon us with calculated abruptness and laid siege to blocks of our streets. First, they rounded up the people from the sidewalk. Then they stormed into the courtyard, up the stairwell, moving ever closer and closer. Terror struck, we bolted into our hiding. While we cringed with fears, soldiers searched every apartment, every corner, and pulled out everyone they could find, men, woman, and child. Hellish pounding, slapping, kicking, crazed barking of dogs, pops of gunshots, cries, and whimpers rose from the stairwell and courtyard. But in our room, you only heard the violent pounding of our hearts. The roundup raids continued until the buildings and the streets were empty hollows, haunted by terror and memories of those who disappeared. We never heard from our relatives and friends and neighbors who were chased to Umschlagplatz and loaded onto freight trains. But a few people who rode these trains came back, not by train. They crawled through the night took circuitous hidden routes and were watchful not to be seen, not even by their Polish neighbors who might denounce them. They too told stories of horrific train rides to a place called Treblinka, where people were forced to strip naked, given bars of soap and chased into showers. Only the showers did not spray water, but poison gas. The soap was a ruse to lure the people into the showers without resisting. They told about big ovens where the corpses of our people were shoved. The ovens had tall chimneys and puffed smoke day and night. The ward trains now shattered in whispers laments, songs and ballads beggars sang at street corners. It evoked horrifying images of parting glances, fading gasps, final heartbeats, an unbearable longing for the lives that had been dashed away. And fear, fear as cold, as sharp as the Arctic ice. Even in the worst of times, individuals stood out in my life like prophets 
and live my way. Dr. Janusz Korczak was such a beacon. He was an author of children's books, an educator, and a surrogate parent to countless children in an orphanage he headed. Through his books, he was known and loved by every Polish child. A friend who was raised in Dr. Korczak's orphanage told me that when a child needed a tooth up extracting, they insisted that Dr. Korczak pull it because then it did not hurt. An order was issued. All the children in his orphanage must be delivered to the ovens of Treblinka post-haste. Poles from the other side of the ghetto wall pleaded with him to agree to be smuggled out and saved. His talents must not be lost, they argued. Dr. Korczak refused. Without a shadow of hesitation, he placed himself abreast the line of his children, told them that they were going on an outing, gave each child a Jewish flag, and singing the Hatikva, marched with them through the streets of the ghetto, onto the cattle trains, and into the ovens of Treblinka. He knew the children could not be saved, and he did not want them to face extermination alone. Dr. Korczak and his children vanished. His humanity remained. And the children, too, remained with me. They ring in the laughter of all children. There were other acts less spectacular, but equally saintly or plain righteous. My parents' friend let himself be beaten to a pulp when he was ordered by soldiers to knock on neighbors' doors and ask in Yiddish or Polish to open the door. Instead, he told the people to stay silent, doors shut and hide. My father, too, was my hero. He was an ordinary kind man who never waited to take the first step to do what must be done. During the liquidation of the ghetto, one person in our courtyard had to dare the raids in the streets to obtain work permits to legalize our precarious existence. Voice after voice expounded on the need for one man to go and who should be the one. No one dared. Then he responded, it's clear we are all equally afraid and we cannot let time slip or we'll be all dead. And he went. Not the youngest, nor the physically strongest. He was ill with tuberculosis. His spittle was crimson. He went and miraculously escaped, hiding beneath wooden planks, battling under Nazi boots. He brought back a temporary permit to live. He chanted in disbelief, Who are these mechanized creatures? I cannot understand, don't they have children and mothers? From July 
till September 1942. In a two-month period, the ghetto lost more than three-fourths of its inhabitants. Children under 14 were classified as useless to the regime and ordered for immediate deportation. I was 13. I was contraband. Fortunately for me, when dressed in adult clothes, I could pass for a 14-year-old. At the start of 1943, the Germans sliced the ghetto into three separate sub-ghettos. Each contained a German factory and became a ghetto unto itself. Only people with work identification papers could live there. The streets between the ghettos, called wild areas, were out of bounds for uh, Jews. Our sub-ghetto formed a square of several streets. We were the sole occupants of a five-story apartment complex. The silence was not silent at all. It crawled through the tiers of vacant flats, the courtyards, and clear beyond the disaster-stricken wild section. Armed groups began to form as soon as people learned the news of Treblinka. The fighters began to prepare a network of underground bunkers for hiding and for entrenchment in case of bombardment. They dug tunnels for movement from one position to the next and to get to the other side of the wall to obtain weapons from the Polish underground. My parents and their friends too built a bunker under our ground floor apartment. Groups of fighters held meetings there. My father was a member. A few isolated clashes between Jewish freedom fighters and German security forces began early in 1943. To punish the Jews, Himmler decided to abolish the ghetto. He set the date for April 19th for the liquidation to begin and resolved to complete his mission in three days, in time to present the Fuhrer with a Judenreich uh, Warsaw for his birthday, a Warsaw cleansed of Jews. Events erupted with the entrance of German columns into the ghetto. Tanks, armored cars with powerful loudspeakers rolled down the street calling for Jews to report willingly for resettlement. An ultimatum blasted over our heads. Unless all Jews followed orders, the Judenrat members would be shot and the ghetto leveled to the ground. We defied these orders and grabbed a few bundles, lifted the secret trapdoor, and stepped down to a narrow down a narrow ladder into our bunker. Three overpowering impressions flood over me as I think back of creeping into the dank basement and hearing the, the trap door 
shutting me in. First, a precarious security of hiding from a catastrophe. Then terror. My world might explode and crash down on us any instant. German soldiers might pounce on us and tear us apart. The third impression, though less urgent at that moment, but nevertheless overwhelming, was banishment. A low ceiling pressing down on me, damp walls closing me in, and indescribable longing for the sky, for the wide open horizons, and for the crisp blueness of day. In this netherworld, a blinking carbide lamp substituted for the sun, the monotonous ticking of the clock was our only link with the outside universe and let us know when day was rising and night falling. We did not stay in the bunker long, only several days and nights. I forgot how many. But if you stay in a dark hole in the ground, listening to the world crashing around you, you never stop sitting there. Some part of you sits there all your life. While we sat in our bunker resisting German orders, fighting began in all three parts of the ghetto. Brigades of Wehrmacht demolition teams rolled through the street, blowing up bunkers, rounding up people, and marching them to Umschlagplatz, slaughtering and dynamiting building after building. Our bunker walls trembled, so did we. Against forces armed from head to toe, against tanks and warplanes, stood poorly outfitted, inexperienced, starving bands of ghetto warriors. They took positions in street corners and lobbed grenades and Molotov cocktails at German columns. Equipped with flamethrowers, mines, rifles, and guns, the Jewish fighters climbed on rooftops stepped in front of open windows, crawled through secret tunnels, and hit columns of German soldiers and their Latvian and Ukrainian collaborators. There was no end to the young fighters' valor. They crouched through confusing networks of sewers to get to the Aryan site to obtain weapons. Too often the Polish underground betrayed them and did not deliver promised arms or instructions. Days of hope passed and no word, word of help of any kind reached the fighters. Disillusioned, abandoned, ill-equipped, Jewish fighters continued their struggle. Clashes flared up with fierce persistence even weeks after the ghetto had been burned to the ground and bled white. And the Germans declared the residential district of Warsaw Ghetto no longer existed. It is noteworthy 
that the Warsaw Ghetto fighters battled longer than it took France or Poland to capitulate. Boom, the trapdoor of our bunker burst open with a detonation so loud I was sure the top of my head blew off. The explosion sucked out all air and everything convulsed under a cloud of dust and flying at splinters. In a terrifying instant, a horde of barbarians invaded our refuge. We no longer had a corner to hide in defiance, nor the liberty to drop to our knees, clench our fists, and smash the earth. They chased us into the street and marched us to Umschlagplatz. The ground beneath us trembled. The air thundered with detonations. Homes crumbled to our feet. Planes circled overhead, dropping incendiary bombs. Flames, enormous tongues of flames, lit the sky and painted it in unworldly spectrums of iridescence. Plumes of smoke, taller than mountains, billowed. Ash and debris fell on our heads and coated our throats. How frightened and forlorn we were. I yanked my face not to see the dead strewn and congealed blood, but their clay faces compelled me to look to acknowledge and not to forget. I shivered with horror. Will I be like they and Mama and Tata and Fredka? What does death feel like? Then onto the trains, the one-way trains. And this ends but a fragment of my story as I remember it of the creation and destruction of the Warsaw Ghetto by my 20th century men. I would like to end my talk with a Jewish legend passed on to me by my biggest hero. Some of you may have heard me tell it before. It says, the fate of the world rests at any time in the hands of 36 righteous men. He, uh, the, um, the Lamed Vav Tzadikim, they perform Tekum Olam, the healing of the world. They do not know they are one of the 36, and neither does anyone else. They just go about their everyday lives doing what is good and right. When I was a child, my father told me that these people will always be amongst us in time of peril. I believed him. I am an old woman now, and I still believe it. I know I have met Lamed Bab Tzadikim. In times of peace, they taught me to love and trust. In times of war, when civilized men went mad, they kept my soul from dying. Mirrored in their humanity, I see my father, whose kindness and courage remain an immortal voice, a mantra as eternal 
as the current and stream. Yes, yes, there is a separating line between the worst and noblest in man, neither purges the other. I see Dr. Korchak who refused to be saved and marched with children into the ovens of Treblinka. I see Raoul Wallenberg and Schindler, individual resistance fighters, and other ordinary people who paid the supreme price to live by their values. The history of the Holocaust is a horrendous blood on a civilized world. We must be moved by it. We must be changed by it. We cannot walk away from it being the same. The sad fact is the genocide still happen. They happen in Rwanda and more. As long as it does, Maidanek, an extermination camp where I landed, and Auschwitz are still with us. I shared my story about my Holocaust travails and about people who illuminated my darkness because they are my symbols that each of us, even the humblest amongst us, is the gatekeeper, the conscience of the world. Each of us is witness and actor, the cause and the consequence, whether we choose a passive or active part. Individually, we are the soul of our nation, of our world, and the fate of our progeny. Consider this. Any one of us may be one of the Lamed Vapsadikim. After all, they go unnoticed because of their humble nature and commonplace vocation. I thank you for listening. Thank you, Estelle.